0: Happy Sabbath. Happy Sabbath. Yes. It's a great joy and a great responsibility as well to be here with you this morning. Since Stephen asked me several months ago to preach this, this Sabbath, I have prayed quite a bit and asked the Lord, What is the message that He would have me to share this morning? I confess that I'm more comfortable preaching in the jungle to a group of river people or Indians. About 10 days ago, I was in the jungle, my wife and my boys and I, where we spend a lot of our time doing training with the local churches and our Bible workers that are, re- that are working in, in unentered areas. And I preached a Wednesday night in the church, my shoes off, in a very comfortable uh, place. We come together through the jungle mud. Everyone takes their flip-flops off at the front of the church, and we come in as a family and open to study, study God's Word. In that sermon, I was translating my own sermon into two languages. So I have an option this morning. I can either consider you all Indians, and I'll feel a little bit more comfortable, or I can take my shoes off, or ask the Holy Spirit to translate what I have to say today, that it can come to your hearts and really meet the need that each one of us have. Let's pray one more time and ask the Holy Spirit to be here with us. Lord, we are so thankful to have this opportunity to come together, Lord, from all over the world to study your word, and to go back, Lord, on fire to continue advancing your kingdom. Lord, send your Holy Spirit in this moment. Lord, I pray that you will be seen and that the words that, that come from my mouth will be your words, Lord. Bless each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I visited an Indian village see if that's better. A few years ago, I visited one of the Indian villages in a region where the Adventist church has not entered yet. And a friend of mine, which is one of our regional coordinators and myself, we spent about three days traveling on a fast boat up a river that has over 47 indigenous villages that do not have the presence of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And the the very first village as you start up the river, has a small church that Leo Halliwell himself started many, many years ago. We stopped and we visited the church. We worked with the Indians, and we set up the river to explore in an area that's not been entered by the Adventist church. After we traveled for a while, we came to a village called Umidituba. We were doing this as a pioneer community evaluation to figure out where we could put strategically Bible workers to open up new areas in this river. And we came to this village called Umirituba, an area where very few of the Indians actually speak Portuguese. And we spoke with some of them. We, we did some health care. And then an older man in his late 70s called us to his hut. And we walked with him to his wooden hut with his thatched roof. And he pulled out from the shelf a Bible. And he proceeded to open the Bible and pulled out a Seventh-day Adventist baptismal certificate. That was dated from 1979. And he said, I'm the only Seventh-day Adventist that lives in this village since 1979. Can you imagine? All by himself. And he still claims to be Seventh-day Adventist. And we found our entry point into that village. But you know what the Bible says in Genesis 2? The Lord God said, Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet. Imagine being an Indian all by yourself, the only Seventh-day Adventist since 1979. The Lord said, that is not good. Throughout the first chapter of Genesis, the, the, record, the creation record, we find the oft-repeated phrase, God saw it, his creation, it was good. Genesis 1, 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25, all of, of chapter 1, God saw it, And it was good. And at the end of the sixth day, God saw that the full sum of his work was very good. In the historical account of this world's first week, we see the stepwise method through which God built this world into his perfect speculations, specifications exactly how he he planned. Yet even before the fall of mankind, the Bible foreshadows potential problems in Eden. The center of mankind's home contained two special trees, each carrying special restrictions. While one tree promised eternal life, freedom, and happiness, the other brought slavery, misery, and death. And in the context of introducing Adam to this tree, which would bring slavery, crying, and suffering, God brought forth a new concept. It is not good that man should be alone, Genesis 2.18. How is it that in a perfect world something could not be good? In a perfect creation, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. At first glance, it may seem strange. God, whose creation was good and even very good, and who blessed and sanctified the Sabbath, should point out a potential flaw in his own creation, Yet God has always sought to reveal himself fully to his creation. And this revelation is but an act of full disclosure made by a loving parent to his children. Adam had to learn that even in sinless perfection, mankind had a weakness, an increased vulnerability to temptation when one is alone. Two are better than one. Who says this? Solomon, Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Though she knew it was not safe to approach the tree of knowledge of good and evil, without her husband at her side, Eve ventured off and spoke to the servant anyway. Together, the holy pair would have been able to withstand the temptations. But alone at the forbidden tree, Eve succumbed to temptation and then led her husband into the folly. Solomon goes on to say, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? When God said it is not good that men should be alone, he was not merely exposing human frailty For he also supplied the solution. I will make him a helpmeet. Together, Adam and Eve could minister together. Eve in her part and Adam in in his part. Though God gave Adam the strength that comes from two united against a common foe. The unity of two into one. This same advantage which is not limited to only marriage relationships, is still available to us today. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, says Jesus, there I am in the midst of them. Matthew 18:20. When two or more people in Jesus' name come together, God is present in a special way that cannot occur when only one person is by themselves. And that something special comes through love. Remember, the only love possible when only one is present is what? It's pride, the love of self, because there is no one in whom we can share love. Did you ever think about this? God exists from all eternity in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, And in that Godhead, we can see the true reflection of love. If we believed in in love, if we believed in God the way the Muslims believe, that there's one God, for all eternity there couldn't exist love because it would be one person with a selfish, a self-centered feeling. Even God himself is three that can exchange love between the three people of the Godhead. But because God is love, He loves us. And God's love stirs up within us a love to return to others, to work for others, and draw into that unity. Love for one another is evidence that we are born of God and know God, says 1 John 4.7. It also announces to the world that God dwells in us and that we are being perfected by Him. 1 John 4.12 and Hebrews 10 24 says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Hebrews 10 24. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Romans 13 8. Yet none of this is possible when one is alone. It's not possible when one is alone. On the night before his death, Jesus prayed for his disciples the first fruit of his church, that they may be one. As as we, he said, the Godhead are one. In John 17, we find his prayer for unity, which we've even been hearing quite a bit lately from an ecumenical standpoint of unity, which isn't exactly the unity that Jesus was praying for. But we see Jesus' prayer for unity among his followers, that we may be one as he is one with the Godhead. Before Jesus, the bridegroom reunites with his, with his bride. The church body must also be one. For God will not let this prayer go unanswered. Sister White shares with us in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 4. We are all represented as being members of the body, united in Christ. In this body, there are various members. And one member cannot perform exactly the same office as another. Yet all these organs are necessary to the perfect whole and work in beautiful harmony with one another. In another quote, she says, the mutual dependence of the followers of Christ is illustrated by the dependence of the members of the body, one upon the other. There's a dependence, one upon the other. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And whether one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. This figure, as representing the church, is full of the most tender significance to God's people, both as their relationship to Christ and as their relation to one another. As in the natural body, the suffering of one member is recognized as suffering and in, in causing harm to the whole. So in the church, the weakness or sorrow of one member reaches all others with its influence. And the strength of one is the gain of all. This unity that Christ prayed for is to be seen not only among individuals, but among ministries. I do believe if Ellen White were alive today, she would address supporting ministries. She would address us. That we can have unity. OCI exists for a reason. It exists to bring unity, to bring networking among ministries around the world that we can be one. That we can have oneness among ministries, among people, and with the organized church. I really appreciated the, the talk that, that Elder Ryan gave yesterday, talking about the church and supporting ministries. And I really appreciated his response to one of the questions, pointing out that, what is the church? What is the church? If we could define church, what would we say is church? Church. The body of God's people. Church are the people. Church is not a a building. This is not the church. This is the church building. But we are God's church. And so we have to have unity in God's church, with God's church, with each other, with each member, with each ministry. And I know if you've been around long enough in any kind of God's work, in any phase, in any department of God's work, you've seen what we call disunity. Unfortunately, Satan sees what Jesus' dying prayer was, and he says, I'm going to go in right to the, the heart of Jesus' prayer, and I'm going to cause disunity. And I want to take, I want to take this morning an opportunity for us to read a, a passage from the Bible and break down just a little bit of what, one example, one principle that the Bible lays out for us when we come to see unity or the question of disunity. I had a, I had a discussion with a young man a few weeks ago um, who came down and spent some time with us in Brazil and um, he comes from a conference in the world where the conference has already approved the, the question of women's ordination which causes what? dissension, disunity. Not because the issue is the problem, but because the way sometimes we act on the issue, we can cause disunity. I'm not here to say whether it's right or wrong, but the way that we proceed with many issues, we have to be honest with ourselves, the way we, the way we proceed with issues can cause disunity. And he and I were dialoguing, and his mother is a minister in this conference that supports women's ordination. And we talked about it in a wonderful way. And I said, what do you think about this in unity? And he had some hard questions. And he said, you know, are we really ever going to have unity? I mean, is that just a nice idea? Is there really going to exist unity in the church? And what is unity anyways? What does that mean? And we dialogued and we, we, we each gave each other a task. Let's spend the next week in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and find a definition for unity and find what does it mean? What does unity mean? Does it all mean we have to wear the same clothes? Does it all mean we have to eat the same food? Does it all mean we have to speak the same language? What does the Bible mean? And we came back together and we had a blessed study of unity. And I want to share with you one principle, not on the definition of unity, but what do we do when the possibility of disunity comes. How can we respond? Open with me your Bibles to the book of John. And I praise the Lord for for principles in God's word. You know, so often we try to make a decision and we're not sure what to do. And there isn't a thus saith the Lord, take this job, or thus saith the Lord, um, go to this place. But the Bible has principles which we can then apply to every situation in life. And in the book of John, chapter three, Starting in verse 22, we find an interesting event that took place. If you'll open with me to John 3, 22, and I'm going, to, I'm going to read some verses. And it says, after these things came Jesus and his disciple into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them and baptized. So we could say that Jesus had his ministry, obviously, and came into the land of Judea. And John also was baptizing in Aenon near to Salim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. So here we find another ministry with the same objective. They're both baptizing. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, He that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and beareth him, and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And when he, heard, when he had seen and heard that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see his life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And there the chapter ends. And so we see an interesting dialogue. And if we open up the desire of ages to the chapter, he must increase, Ellen White breaks it down. And she says, let's study this interaction and see exactly what happened and what, what are the principles that we can take from this. And I encourage you to look at this. I encourage you to go back and read this chapter in its fullness. It is a beautiful chapter that is full of principles for God's work. What happened here? Jesus, who is God, who is the Son of God, who was perfect, who was doing ministry, who came to the earth to show what, what is who is God, what is God's objective, and to clarify to a world that was in darkness, what is God's purpose on this earth, had a ministry that he was was working on, that he was reaching people. And one of his very own disciples also had a ministry, which, which his objective was to point towards Jesus, and they began working in the same area. So we've got two ministries that are working in the same area with one same objective. There was a lot of water, the Bible says. There's lots of room to work together. But suddenly, John's disciples became a bit jealous. Why were they jealous? They had a potential. They had a a following going on. Sister White says, For a time the Baptist's influence over the nation had been greater than that of its rulers, priests, or princes. If he had announced himself as the Messiah and raised a revolt against Rome priests and people would have flocked to his standard Do you see why they were jealous there were some of them were following him because he had a following he had more power than the very organized church itself did at that point so there was a potential for him and his disciples said hey you know if he does go any farther I'm going to be like the head honcho in this and so there's some there's reason for jealousy and Ellen White goes on to say that the crowds begin lessening day by day as the Savior worked in that area. The crowds began leaving John and coming to Jesus. Was that not the, the point of John's ministry? Absolutely. But his disciples didn't see that so quickly. They didn't see it. They said, wait a minute. You know, we had 700 with us yesterday. Today there's 600. And the next day there's 400. Now hold on. And they came to John and said, hey, he's doing the same thing we are. And they showed jealousy. What does the Bible say John's response was to that? He immediately pointed back to what his strategic plan that was laid out said. You think John had a strategic plan? He did. He knew what his end goal was. And he knew how he was going to get there. And suddenly there was an opportunity for something else. But he said, no, wait a minute. My end objective is this. It is to raise him up, that he may increase and I may decrease. You know what Sister White says? If John had sympathized with himself and expressed grief or disappointment at being superseded, he would have sown the seeds of dissension, would have encouraged envy and jealousy, and would have seriously impeded the progress of the gospel. Did you hear that? If he had only sympathized with himself, if he had just sat down in his council and said, I know this is hard. You know, we have had a nice ministry. And, but, and even if he had come out with the right answer in the end, it, she says if he had sympathized with himself, it would have sown the seeds of dissension, which would have hindered the progress of the gospel. There's so many points that we need to study in this chapter. That's why I, say I, increase, I encourage you to go home and read over this chapter and, and say, Lord, is there something that I can apply for my ministry? I don't know. I don't know your ministry. I don't know where you're at. But God does, and he can speak to us. Sister White says those who are true to their calling as messengers for God will not seek honor for themselves. Love for self will be swallowed up in love for Christ. No rival, no rivalry will mar the precious cause of the gospel. We have to be swallowed. We have to be totally swallowed in Jesus. Self cannot exist as we take the gospel of of Christ forward. Now, so we see here this example of the two ministries working together. And we see John's immediate response. And we see Ellen White's comments saying, that was right. In fact, had he even haltered and thought about uh, about self-dissension, seeds of dissension would have happened. Does the story end there? you know what? The chapter ends. I want to read a few more verses, which when I read this and the Spirit of God spoke to me, it's amazing. If you're still there, open up to chapter 4 with me. It says the Samaritan woman, if your Bible has, has titles on it. It's a new chapter, but it's a continuation of the same story, and it says what? When, therefore, the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made, the bapti- made and baptized more disciples than John. Now, hold on. So we had a problem that arose between two ministries, Jesus and John the Baptist. Was Jesus in the wrong? Was John the Baptist in the wrong? Were either one of them doing anything wrong in their ministry? Were they both doing God's work? Yes. When the issue arose, was it dealt with correctly? Yes. Ellen White says it was. But the Bible goes on, and let's see what it says. When, therefore, the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard. The Pharisees had heard. This is a third party now. When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Now, hold on. That's three small verses, but it speaks so much. What's happening here? There was an issue. The issue was resolved. The issue was resolved correctly. Ellen White says, had John, but he didn't. But then the Pharisees got the word that there had been this jealousy between John's disciples. And that they had even dealt with it. But the, when the Pharisees got the word, the Bible says, Jesus departed and went into Galilee. Let me read you what Ellen White says about that and just let it settle for just a minute. Jesus knew that they would, that they, they she's talking about the priests and the rabbis, the chapter above, I mean the paragraph above, she says the, the priests and the rabbis had been jealous. They were not willing So then she goes on to say, when Jesus knew that they, the priests and the the rabbis, would spare no effort to create a division between his own disciples and those of John, he knew that the storm was gathering, which would sweep away one of the greatest prophets ever given to the world, wishing to avoid all occasion for misunderstanding or dissension, he Jesus quietly ceased his labors and withdrew to Galilee. Why don't you think about that for just a minute? Jesus, God himself doing his ministry on this earth, came into some kind of division with another ministry, not because He was even in the wrong. It's not to say He's doing wrong, neither is the other ministry, but division. Begin, it was dealt with. But a third party was going to cause division. And Jesus perceived it. And Jesus ceased his activities and went to another place. Let that sink in again. And let me read to you what she says for us. We also, while loyal to truth, should try to avoid all. That may lead to discord and misapprehension. We also, following Jesus, following John the Baptist, the example that happened, we should do all to avoid all that may lead to discord and misapprehension. You know what she says? Here's here's the punchline for me. For whenever these arise, discord and misapprehension, whenever these arise, they result in the loss of souls. Did you understand that? they result in the loss of souls. If the strategic plan of our ministry is to save souls, and disunity is going to cause a loss of souls, is it following our strategic plan? It's not. And so, well, now hold on, Lord, what do I do here? Like, uh, do I go somewhere else? I mean, I can't. There's a need here. There's a lot of water. The Bible said there was a lot of water. There's a lot of need. But Jesus saw, more importantly than pressing forward to reach the lot of need, that any disunity would cause a loss of souls instead of a gain of souls. And so there is a principle for unity among God's people. Ellen White says in in finishing, Whenever circumstances occur that threaten to cause division, we should follow the example of Jesus and John the Baptist. Amen. There we go. That is the Holy Spirit speaking through the, through the spirit of prophecy, through the Bible, to give us a principle for our ministries. You know what? If we want true unity, then sometimes we have to have patience. Sometimes we have to know when to say no. Sometimes we have to say, Lord, I'll go where there's more water. Because a cause anything that will cause to disunity will cause a loss of souls. You know something else interesting about that. Ellen White says one more thing. She says the same danger still exists today. God calls a man to do a certain work, and when he has carried it as far as he is qualified to take it, the Lord brings in another to carry it still far- farther. But like John's disciples, many feel the same. Feel that success of the work depends on the first laborer. Attention is fixed on the human instead of the divine. Jealousy comes in, and the work of God is marred. You know what? Sometimes the hardest thing we can do as leaders is to realize we've done our best, and now God will use somebody else. And that's hard on any of us, especially if we've given our life to a cause. And we say, but I know more about this than anybody. Does it depend on me? Does it depend on you? Or does it depend on God? Now, I'm not saying abandon your field and go somewhere else because it got hard. I'm saying when God leads you somewhere or God leads someone else, acknowledge that it's not you and it's God, and this work is God's work. Just want to encourage you guys to, to take some time and read this chapter through. I just pointed out a few, a few points that have helped me so much in my walk as a ministry. And I asked the question, are you a lone candle sputtering in the darkness? What happens to a lone candle? It burns out. You will shine brighter and longer when you minister to others with others. Amen. As more and more unite in the spirit of truth, what unites? Truth unites. When more and more unite in the spirit of truth, the whole earth will be lighted with the glory of God. The power of two gathered in Jesus' name is really the power of one. It's one. It's the one thing. It's unity. Unity in God's love. It is the power for our church to overcome the devil and to gain victory over sin. It's the power that's stronger than death. It's the power